0: The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. So we've been talking um, about uh, the book of Jeremiah for a few weeks now. Um, Jeremiah is a pretty phenomenal character in the... Sorry. What did I say? Oh, no. <laughs> Nehemiah, excuse me, I'm already messing up. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about Nehemiah, um, a, a character that I, I feel like often gets glossed over. We kind of forget about the minor prophets, um, right? They're small books, and they say some pretty incredible things and scare us sometimes. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to um, be, be bringing out um, some of Nehemiah's wisdom for us tonight. So we're, we're talking tonight about Nehemiah 5, um, and uh, the, the scripture is this. This is the voice of Nehemiah coming to the people of Israel. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish kin. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, and we must get grain so that we may eat and stay alive. And there were also those who said, we're having to pledge our fields and our vineyards and our houses in order to get grain during this famine. And there were those who said, we are having to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay the king's tax. They were being ruled by Persia. And now our flesh is the same as that of our kindred, and our children are the same as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been ravished, and we are powerless. And now our fields and our vineyards belong to others. I was very angry and when I heard their outcry and these complaints. And after thinking it over, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are all taking interest from your own people. And I called a great assembly to deal with them and said to them, As far as we have been able, we have bought back our Jewish kindred, who have been sold to other nations. But now you are selling your own kin, who must be bought back by us? And they were silent, for they could not find a word to say. So I said, This thing that you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Let us stop this taking of interest. Restore to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and all the interest on money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been taking from them. And then they said, we will restore everything and demand nothing more from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them take an oath to do as they promised. I shook out every fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out everyone from house and from property who does not perform this promise. Thus may they be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So for those of you who haven't been with us throughout the series, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about about Nehemiah. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He was an Israelite serving as a cupbearer in the court of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. Uh, towards the end of the book of Chronicles, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Um, this had been foretold um, for years by the prophet Jeremiah and by Isaiah, um, warning the people that if they did not return to their God, uh, that their city was going to fall. And it did fall. And for many years, the people lived in exile. Um, After Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, uh, he totaled the temple that Solomon had built to rubble. He leveled the walls and burned their gates and carried off all of Israel's treasures and took many people as captives back to Persia. This was one of the greatest tragedies and insults um, that God's people could possibly suffer, having their city destroyed, their holy temple, and having their people dispersed throughout the nations, being kept as slaves by their enemies. So when Nehemiah enters the picture, many of these exiles had begun to return to the destroyed Jerusalem and were trying to rebuild their lives and their people. But they remained oppressed under Persian rule. Nehemiah was close to the king being his cupbearer, and we can suppose he had a pretty good relationship with him because he was able to ask for permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall of the city. Nehemiah was moved to do this both so that the city would be pr- protected uh, with a with wall totaled. Um, the city was very vulnerable to attack. And also because it um, it lying in ruin brought disgrace upon the people. It was a painful reminder of the destruction that the city had had felt. And it was a visible, the wall itself was a visible representation of God's protection and provision over the city. Nehemiah wanted to build the wall. So he began to do so and he faced some opposition from uh, local local Persian um, officials, even though the king had given him permission, but with God's help and the persistence of the people, they continued to build the wall. But in chapter five, we see um, opposition coming, trouble coming from within the walls, from his own people that threatened the community's well-being and his ability to continue God's work. So up until now, Israel had faced all sorts of oppression and injustice from the outside, from Persia, from other nations, their enemies. But in chapter five, we see trouble arising that threatens to destroy their community and their witness as God's people and as a light to the nations. So here's what's happening in in chapter five. There are other problems happening. Not only are they being ruled by Persia, but there's famine in the land. People are losing their vineyards and their fields. Uh, They don't have enough money to even buy what they need to eat. And so they're being mortgaged, uh, their homes, their vineyards, everything they need is being mortgaged to wealthier folks in their community, their Israelite brethren. And some of them are so poor that they are even having to sell their children into slavery so that they have enough to eat so they won't starve. This is um, a pretty, pretty terrible thing for a number of reasons. Um, First, though the times were hard, the wealthy Israelites were taking advantage of the poor in their community by charging them them incredible interest, incredible interest. They're being like credit card companies, um, taking incredible interest rates on what they're lending. And this is explicitly against Old Testament law. Um, Leviticus 25 um, states, if any one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support him or herself among you, help them as you would help any foreigner or temporary resident so that they may continue to live among you. Do not take interest of any kind from them, but fear your God. You must not lend them any money or interest, money at interest, or sell them food at a profit, for I am the Lord your God. If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells themselves to you, do not make them work as a slave, but they are to be treated as a hired worker, and do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. So when one lends to a brother or sister in Israel, they're not to charge them any interest at all, but to give freely and generously. And this is not happening. And this is a part of the covenant that God makes with Israel, something that distinguishes them from the nations around them. They are to treat one another as family, as kin, with love and generosity. So the wealthy are explicitly breaking the law of God and the covenant which protects Israel. This is the sort of thing that would be permissible by the wider culture of Persia. Hey, times are hard. Take what you can get. Take advantage of people. But God's people are called to live by a higher standard, where the bottom line is not greed, not selfishness, but humble, sacrificial love. Instead, the wealthy in their community are taking advantage of their people for their own personal gain. Second, Because they were charging such incredible interest rates, people are becoming so destitute that they're having to sell their children into slavery. Slavery was actually permitted in the Old Testament. It was a way to to pay off debt. Um, Slaves were to be treated humanely. Um, But in in this case, if any of their community was sold as a slave, again, they were to be treated as hired workers and their debt was to be forgiven every seven years. And the text implies that probably was not happening. Um, And we can see that clearly, um, these children are not being treated humanely. Um, some, of, some of these young girls had been ravished, um, which, which means raped or sexually molested, and, and clearly that's deplorable. So the people go to Nehemiah, and they are, they are just aghast. They're, they're very upset, um, and, and they need help. Um, so they go to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah hears what they have to say, and he becomes incredibly angry because there's a cruel irony happening here. These people have recently been bought out of slavery to Persia. They have just entered Jerusalem again after years in exile and suffering. And now they are being enslaved again by their own people. These people that he is laboring to build a wall to protect are destroying themselves within their own walls and treating each other as badly as their Persian oppressors did. They just escaped exile by an unjust people only to turn on each other with the same oppression. So Nehemiah is very upset. He says to them, what are you doing? Do you you not see that this is wicked? They're breaking God's law by charging interest. They're being cruel to their own brothers and sisters, not treating each other as kindred, as those that God dearly loves. They're threatening the well-being of the entire community's unity. And finally, they're jeopardizing their witness to their brothers and and those outside the community, to the nations. Um, In verse 9, he says, should you not walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of our enemies? For if we, we, if we are God's people, our lives must be characterized by God's love, justice, and mercy. So in their actions, in their sin against one another, they are defaming the very name of God in their witness to their neighbors and calling into question the very validity of God's name, of the very God that they worship and the faith that they profess. Here are God's people just beginning to rebuild their community and yet destroying themselves from within. What they're doing is undermining their community, whose very purpose is to be a light to the nations, so that other people may look at them and see God. God's love, God's mercy, God's justice and holiness are to be made known through these people by the way that they treat each other. This theme is persistent throughout all of Scripture, all over the New Testament and the Old. Jesus says in in John 13, Just as I have loved you, You should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 1 John 3 also says, The children of God and the children of the evil one are revealed in this way. All you who do what is right are from God. Those who do not are not from God, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. For this is the message you have heard from the very beginning, that you should love one another. It's it's something we frequently hear around UPC. Love God, love others. Probably my my favorite Facebook status under, under religious beliefs. Love God, love others. Love God by loving others. This is the heart of the gospel. And when God's people fail to live this out tangibly, not in word or speech, but in truth and action, The gospel is rendered meaningless to the world. It becomes a joke. Teresa of Avila is one of my favorite theologians. She was a 16th century mystic living in Spain. She wrote a beautiful poem called Christ Has No Body that that brings out this point. She writes, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on the world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. It is our job to be Christ's body, just as it was Israel's in in the Old Testament. So when Nehemiah sees that the people are breaking God's covenant and treating each other with injustice, he recognizes that this injustice demands action. So he calls a great assembly to deal with them, to call them out on their sin, and to challenge them to do what is right. First he says to them in verse 9, what you are doing is not good. He calls it as he sees it, very simple, direct, it's not good. we just bought back our people. You're charging them interest, this explicitly breaks God's law. We're not living up to who we are called to be. Let us give back to them what we have taken. Let's change, let's repent. There are a number of significant things happening here, both in the way that Nehemiah handles the situation and in how the people respond. First, there are three levels at which Nehemiah responded to injustice that are important for us. First, he responded emotionally. Uh, I, I feel like that's sort of the first step that many of us take in response to injustice. It's our sort of visceral reaction to a grave problem. We react with anger or sadness. We watch Hotel Rwanda and we weep, we ask why. We feel moved when we hear news of suffering and injustice on the news or in stories of friends who've gone abroad or what we hear is happening in our own communities. We talk about that a lot around conversions. We know that human trafficking is alive and well in Seattle. There's forced prostitution happening blocks from where some of us live. Organizations are denying their employees benefits um, that they need, and insurance companies are denying people the coverage they need to stay alive. There are all kinds of, of things happening among us uh, that, that can make us feel very upset with good cause. We become angry and we long to do something, but all too often our response stays at that emotional level because we don't know what to do. And the more that we feel, the, the more overcome we become with compassion fatigue, we feel powerless, and finally that emotion dissolves and we do nothing. But sometimes we, we deceive ourselves and feel holier that even, even though we've done nothing, we've, we've recognized that, hey, that's, that's wrong, and, and I felt badly about it, and, and we feel that we've done something, when in reality, we've, we've done nothing. Nehemiah, too, was very angry at the injustice in his community, but he did take things to the next level, the intellectual level. In verse 7, he considered what he ought to do. He didn't stop by empathizing with the people. He didn't merely listen to them, feel for them, say, I'll pray for you. Not that that's not a good thing. It's a good thing. But so often I think God calls us to answer our own prayers. Rather, his reverence for God and subsequently his love for people motivated him to take action. And that's the third level, volition. We consider, we pray, and then we move. If we're able to confront injustice in our own lives and in our community, we can then begin to think about the larger world. But to do that, we must first tacitly consider what God is calling us to do in our own lives with what is before us right now. If we remain paralyzed at that emotional level, the situation will become overwhelming and nothing will ever change In the same way, when we think about injustice, I think we we so often think about situations that are very far removed from us. Um, The AIDS epidemic in in Africa, violence in the Middle East, human trafficking in Seattle, even. Um, What do we do about that? We feel powerless and and overwhelmed. It's not that we don't have good intentions. So what do we do? Most of us are really busy. Uh, We have demanding schedules, um, whether it's having a job or looking for a job. Some of us don't have a lot of resources. um, And some of us are so weighed down with our own problems that we don't know what we could possibly give. So I'm not saying that all of you are called to move overseas and, and serve the needy. Though some of you might. You won't know until you ask God. What we are called to do is to start small. To ask ourselves, what is God calling me to do to live in righteousness and love? to fight injustice in my own life, in my own community? What am I passionate about? What, what has God given me to help those in need? How do I spend my time? Where do I spend my money? What skills do I have to offer that are needed? Nehemiah, too, looked at the situation right in front of him and considered what God was calling him to do to make it right. Surely there were bigger things to be done. He was trying to build a wall, after all, around the city. And the greater purpose of Israel wasn't about a wall and wasn't about community squabbles. It was about being a light, um, bringing, bringing the light of Christ to the nations to bless the whole earth. But Nehemiah understood that as long as God's people were not united and they were actively sinning against and harming each other, that the greater purpose could not be accomplished. That wall didn't mean anything If Israel was not manifesting God's love to others, it could protect them from the outside, but it could not protect them from each other. Sin destroys community. This is going to be a challenge as as we seek to live out community here at Convergence. Because there's sin in all of us. There's sin in me, there's sin in you, there's sin in in all of our leaders. That's, That's the raw deal that we got. We must face our sin as we ask God, what's in front of me? And what would you have me do? Because if we don't ask ourselves about our sin, that sin will undermine our ministry. I'm sure many of you, if you've been in the church for any length of time, have witnessed exciting things happening in your ministries, in your small groups, in your college campuses, wherever it be, to watch things fall apart because of the destruction, destructive actions of members or of leaders. It's one of the greatest challenges to the church today. We have to remember that any who want to enjoy the benefits of community must be accountable to it. We cannot live selfishly and heedlessly of others. Because your life is not your own if you serve Jesus Christ. We live in a really fiercely, I feel like this is the most important point, so let me say it again. We live in a fiercely independent culture. But if you serve Jesus Christ, your life is not your own. I'm preaching this to myself too. Your life is not your own. Many of us cringe at that ideology because it's been abused. It has been. But it's true. If you're a follower of Christ, your life does not belong to you anymore. It belongs to God and to God's people. And everything that you have, everything that God has given you, belongs to God and to God's people. God is not a genie who grants wishes. God is not a self-help series who exists to give your life purpose, though God may do that. God is about transforming broken people. And that is good news for us. That is good news because we are all incredibly broken people. And many of us are trying to fix ourselves with tools that will not cut it. In Jesus Christ, God meets us in our brokenness and invites us into the painful, lifelong, incredibly trying, but ultimately joyous journey to become who we were created to be, which is in love with God and in love with others. Philippians 2 is a great, great model of this. The writer says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to that of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What God is calling us to is hard, hard work. Community, life together is incredibly difficult. It brings us face to face with our brokenness and our failure to be all that God has called us to be. That is why marriage, um, many of my friends and, and my parents tell me, is such a difficult but potentially transformative relationship. It forces us to look at ourselves through another's eyes, and that view is not always pretty. We come face to face with our own incredible selfishness and are called out of it, and that is a very painful process. It's like having a tumor extracted without anesthesia. But thank God we are called to something so much better, gloriously better, because selfishness will kill us. It will come between us and God. It will come between us and each other. And it will become, come between us and joy and a life that is worth living. We come to see that love is not romance. Be it in a romantic sense or, you know, who hasn't had a friend that they put up on a pedestal for a while? A mentor? Love is not romance and it's not a feeling. It is service. Love is service. Living in community, be it in marriage, family, friendship, church, is not easy. But it is what we are made for. It is what God created us to be, to experience, to love, to enjoy. And it's the truest path to joyful living. So how do we deal with sin? Another thing Nehemiah teaches us is the meaning of repentance. We must confront each other in love and offer each other the opportunity to repent. And we do that in truth and love. This is what Nehemiah did. He, um, he could have gone about this, this meeting many ways and he didn't mudsling or name call. He just spoke the truth. What you're doing is not good. You're breaking God's law. You're causing suffering among your own people and defaming the name of God among the nations. But he wasn't looking for an apology. He didn't stop there. That would have been pretty meaningless if, if the nobles had stood before the people and said, Sorry about that. Yep, ravished your daughter. I'll try not to do that again. He wasn't looking for an apology. He was looking for repentance. And repentance and an apology are very different things. The most important thing I think I, I learned in studying the Old Testament in seminary was the translation of the Hebrew word shuv, uh, which is, is used for repent. And it means literally to turn, to turn around. To repent means literally to stop going the direction you're headed and turn another way. It implies action, not emotion. and. Honestly, I, I feel like the majority of the time we claim repentance, we're really just feeling sorry for ourselves. So I include myself in that. We because we don't change. We we don't change. We we don't stop doing what we're doing. In fact, sometimes we have no desire to. We apologize because we know we should, or because someone called us out and we feel ashamed. But we have no desire to change our behavior, to do what's necessary to make it right. This is not repentance. It's shame, and that's an emotion. First John says, we must, love not in, we must love not in word or in speech, but in truth and in action. True repentance is always followed by action. This is what Nehemiah challenged the wealthy Israelites to do. He said, If you believe this is wrong, if you are truly sorry, then you will stop what you're doing. And you will return to the people what you have taken from them. True repentance also means making restitution. It means giving back what has been stolen as far as it's possible. It means doing all that we can to heal the feelings that we've hurt. It means being faithful to the one we have been unfaithful to. It means doing whatever it takes to be at peace with one another and with God. Finally, Nehemiah teaches us that true repentance comes from the heart. Notice that The wealthy Israelites did not simply acquiesce out of shame at being charged publicly. Because they certainly could have done that. Because after they agreed, they praised the Lord. They praised the Lord. They saw that what Nehemiah was saying was true. And they knew in their hearts and their minds that they had sinned. And in recognizing that sin, they knew the goodness of God's law. That what they had been doing was wicked and destructive. And they didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. They had the desire to return to the Lord. Much of the time when we repent, we still want our sin. And as long as we want our sin, it will be a constant and tormenting temptation. But by turning away from selfishness and greed, the Israelites turn towards holiness and love. When we know that what God calls us to do is good, when we really believe it, when we know in our hearts and our minds it becomes much easier to do. Much easier to do. When we turn towards God, God's Spirit helps us to do what we cannot do. I don't mean to make this sound easy, but repentance is not easy. It is not easy at all. If it was, the church, is, the church would be in, in much better shape today than it is. Um, however, this is good news for us, because it is God who works this in us. If we will simply work with God, if if we will, if we will put ourselves into that work, obedience can then become joyful. Then our tithe stops being an obligation and it becomes an exciting opportunity to love those God loves, to provide for people who need it. Our sacrifices become joyful experiences of participating in God's work in someone else's life rather than something we're just too tired to do. So I have three challenges for us as we close. The first is, what is God doing in front of you right now, in the community around you? How is God inviting you to participate in that? What has God given you in skill, in resources, in passions? And how is God calling you to use it? Because I don't believe that any of us are missing one of those things. And I don't believe there's never a time for them to be used, even when we are at our most destitute, our most downtrodden. It's often by serving that we are lifted up. God isn't calling you to save the world. That's that's an assumption a lot of us make. I know in seminary, a lot of us got really weighed down by Messiah complexes and felt so overwhelmed, we, we nearly left the ministry altogether. <laughs> Thank God Jesus already did that. Jesus already saved and redeemed the world. You're not called to do that. But God is calling you to be faithful where you are, with what you have. What could that look like? I have a couple of, of stories um, from, from saints in my own life to share with you about that. Uh, first one is uh, Brandon, a friend of mine. Um, I think he's gonna come up on PowerPoint in a minute here. Um, he's a, a really sharp guy. He graduated from college with a degree in, in IT and got a really prestigious job um, with a firm in Washington, D.C. and was making a ton of money, working a ton of hours, um, but he didn't feel satisfied. Um, He felt like he was working for for the man um, and and not for the kingdom and uh, felt like God was calling him to something else. So he prayed about it and did some research and found that he had a passion for human trafficking. Um, So he planned to spend a year in Mexico City working with an organization there, quit his job, and uh, went down to Guatemala to learn Spanish and, and to get ready to be there. But while he was in Guatemala, that opportunity fell through. He had already quit his job. He had no place to go. So he looked at the community in front of him, and he considered where his skills could be used. And he began working with a local organization using, using his IT skills. Uh, wasn't really what he wanted to do, but he was offering what he had. And while he was there, he ended up having the opportunity to be assigned uh, the, the principal's role at a school for underprivileged kids. And he had no education background, smart guy, but no experience in that, uh, but took the role on, said, this is where God's calling me. God will help me, and he revolutionized that school. Um, I've, I've been there and seen it. He's done incredible things because he was faithful with what he had where he was. He's an incredible person, I'm honored to know him. The second story, uh, not, not all of us are called to go overseas, and that's fine, that's really okay. Um, my parents live in rural Wisconsin, they have for years. And they're simple people, they, um, my dad's a carpenter, my mom's a midwife, um, they don't have a ton of money, um, but you know they brought us up well. And my mom had always had a heart for kids. And as they were approaching midlife, my parents were asking, what is God doing in this season of our lives? What is God calling us to? I feel like God is calling us to something more. And my mom had kids at home still. She, she couldn't go abroad and help orphans. Um, and so, so through a time of prayer and discernment, she and my father realized that God was calling them to adopt. Um, and uh, over the course of a few years, um, they've adopted Matthew and Lydia from China. Um, for the cost of a new car, Um, they were able to give life to a child who never would have had a home or a family. Yeah, she's pretty darn cute. Um, (laughs) They've been the greatest joy and and blessings in our lives. Um, It it meant a sacrifice of finances to my parents, to a sacrifice of time. They're in their mid-40s. They're gonna be so old by the time they're in high school. (laughs) But, but they were faithful to what God was doing, and it's such an incredible blessing. Um, even though other people look at my parents and say, how on earth are you doing that? Um, God, is, God is faithful. So wherever you are in your life, um, you have gifts and, and skills and resources and time. Consider what is God calling you to do where you are with what you have, not in five years' time when, when things look closer to what you probably imagine, right? Aren't we always saying, oh, in five years, then I'll have it together. (laughs) Life hasn't turned out the way I thought it would, but in five years. It's just not the way life works. (laughs) Believe me, it's not. Um, What is God calling you to do to be faithful right now? Second, where is your sin and brokenness existing in your life and in the community around you that is causing you and your community to be less than God is calling you to be? And how can you work towards repentance and restoration there? i um, talking about sin. Generally, makes us really uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, I feel like in, in mainline churches, we we get really excited about God's love, and um, and that's fantastic. And, but you know, we don't want to associate ourselves with those, you know, sort of hellfire and brimstone people, and um, you know, who make people feel bad about themselves. And there's certainly enough of that in the world. So so we focus on love, and that's great. That's fantastic. God loves us. God loves the world. But the, the reality is that there's still there's sin in our lives. There's sin among us, and it's very damaging to us personally and to us as a community. Uh, and we have to be aware of that. We sin uh, consciously sometimes, and at other times it's simply a byproduct of our own brokenness, um, and it and it hurts us. Sin and hypocrisy in the church, uh, I believe, is the biggest roadblock that that faces the church today. Uh, I'm sure many of you have have stories of of folks who just got fed up, um, fed up with the hypocrisy that they saw and left. Um, I've I've almost been there many times, recently even. Um, It's very discouraging. Mahatma Gandhi um, has a, a rather uh, famous famous story around this. Um, he was, was the leader of the people of India in the time that, that they were breaking away from colonial rule. Um, very famous and amazing man, a Hindu, and an avid reader. And although he was a Hindu, in his quest towards freedom, he, he was interested in learning more about Jesus of Nazareth. So he read the four Gospels, the Christian Gospels, and he was incredibly impressed with, with what he read and what he saw, so much so that he wanted to go to church and learn more about Jesus. So he went to a church in Calcutta one Sunday morning, decided he would visit, and upon seeking entrance to the church sanctuary, he was stopped by the door by one of the ushers. The ushers told him that he was not welcome there, nor would he be permitted to attend this particular church because it was for high-caste Indians and whites only. And he was neither high-caste nor was he British. So he turned his back on on the Christian faith, um, saying, saying famously, if all Christians acted like Jesus Christ, the entire world would be Christian. But I don't like what I see from Christians. It's the greatest, the greatest trouble the, the church faces today. So we sin not only by what we do, but what we fail to do. When was the last time you asked a friend of yours, Hey, how, how are you treating your girlfriend or your wife, your boyfriend? How, how are you serving them? How are you showing them selfless love? How are you serving God and and the kingdom with your time and your resources? And I notice you're holding a grudge against so-and-so. What's that about? What's standing between you and forgiveness? How are you nurturing Christ's love in your life? We must hold each other accountable when we see failure to be the people of God in our community. But that requires compassion and boldness. It is not only when our community is united in love that we can really be about God's greater purpose in the world, which is restoring all of creation through Jesus Christ, only when we are united. Finally, Nehemiah calls us to intentionality. He puts his finger on a great truth, that our greatest witness to those around us of our faith is the way we live our lives. So I challenge you to look at your life Look at your relationships. Are they characterized by love? Look at your time, the way you spend your money. Is your heart's desire to love God and others manifested in what you see? Are you fair to those who work for you? Are you kind to people when no one is looking? Do you tell the truth and take responsibility for your actions? When other people look at you, do they see a good person? Or a person whose life is characterized by an astonishing love? Or do they see a person who does all the right things but with a resentful heart? Because what we are called to do is to live lives that manifest in word and in deed the foolish and astonishing love that Christ has for us. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we lower our heads before you and we confess that we have too often forgotten that we are yours. Sometimes we carry on our lives as if there were no God and we fall short of being a credible witness to you. For these things we ask your forgiveness and we also ask for your strength. Give us clear minds and open our hearts so that we may witness to you in our world. Remind us to be who you would have us to be, regardless of what we are doing or who we are with. Hold us to you and build our relationship with you and with those you have given us on earth. Amen.